Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Well, welcome to tonight's show. We're going to have an interesting one uh, tonight because we're going to talk about generational issues in the workplace. Uh, our first guest, and oh, someone I'm really pleased to be with, is Jim Finkelstein. He's written a book, uh, uh, which I found absolutely fascinating. It was one of the reasons why, um, one of the reasons why he's on this. Um, program. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Don. Pleasure to be here. Um, uh, well, we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, well, Jim, before, before we go further, we always ask our guests a little bit about themselves personally. Can you tell uh, the background? Because I, sure. I, I know we're looking at the bio, bio, your bio, it's fascinating. So tell our audience. Well, thank you, Don. Uh, it's always always uh, a pleasure to be on a show like this that's dedicated to um, improving uh, business, and hopefully I'll be able to give you some insights. So my insights basically come from uh, a place of having had a myriad of different things that I've done in my life. Oftentimes I refer to myself as a millennial in boomer clothing. So I am a boomer. That means I'm one of the old guys. Uh, but I often think and, uh, and behave, perhaps, a little bit like a millennial. So from a background point of view, I was a job hopper. I held jobs starting out in management consulting, and then I went over to the corporate side to work at Pepsi-Cola, American Can, uh, Emory Air Freight. Uh, I moved back into consulting. I've been a partner in one of the uh, uh, former big eight accounting firms. I've been a CEO of a company in San Francisco for seven years, and starting in 1995, I started my own business, FutureSense. Well, the reason I call myself a millennial in boomer clothing, and it may open up the discussion around generations, is that some of the characteristics that people attribute to millennials, those are the youngsters, uh, is a desire to climb to the top fast. I had that same desire. Um, the desire to have a diversity of different experiences or adventures, as my son likes to call it. And, and I have done that, as I've mentioned, uh, sitting on both Fortune 500 companies, sitting in uh, uh, big five firms, and also being an entrepreneur. Um, millennials of this generation have lots of outside interests, and I've uh, produced a movie and I've written a book. The book is Fuse, Making Sense of the New Co-Generational Workplace, and um, so written a, you know, written a book and, and produced a movie. And then the other thing is that they have a tremendous degree of social consciousness. And for the last, I have to admit this, 40 years, I've served on boards of directors of YMCA's, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and a lot of other community-based organizations. And the final thing that, calls me, that causes me to call myself a millennial in boomer clothing is a real strong desire to have work-life life balance and, and really look at my family as being a centerpiece, uh, but also to be able to do the things in life, whether it's music or sports-related, that I really enjoy doing. For example, I am still a, a very active high school soccer referee. So uh, it's that diversity of life experience, the diversity of adventures, and all the job hopping I did early in my career that calls me a millennial in boomer clothing, and hopefully that gives your listeners an insight into uh, uh, who I am and what I'm all about. Well, what it does is raise more questions than answers. We could go a whole, a whole time with that. But, but let's get to, to the topic because uh, I, uh, I know that uh, uh, there's a lot of people in our audience, myself uh, included, that uh, are really uh, concerned. The word is not concerned so much, but uh, puzzled by this mm-hmm. uh, uh, generation. 
I, I, we were in our, uh, our local Walmart the, the other night, uh, and uh, we saw a generational conflict uh, between an older worker and a younger wor- worker. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I turned to my wife and I said, well, thank God we have Jim on the program this Wednesday. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about it. But uh, what, are, what are the issues that, uh, that drive the, uh, uh, the generational differences? Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's talk about generational differences first and then talk about generational similarities because my thesis is, is that we're more similar than different, but I'm going to go with you on this, Don, to talk about the differences first because that's where most people form their, their bias in this, in this conversation, that we're so radically different that we just can't play in the sandbox together. But I can give you as many examples about coworkers not getting together that are uh, age agnostic, that they're the same age, uh, that uh, they may be uh, of, uh, the, of, of diverse backgrounds, and that causes the conflict. So we've assumed it's age, and I'm going to go with you on that. And so let me give you some data that may uh, be, be helpful. There was a study done by Nick Shore, who's the Senior Vice President of Strategic Insights and Research at MTV, and he did a great piece, and this was back in 2012, so it's still pretty relevant. And it found the following things, and I won't give you all of the data, but I'll give you some of it. Um, first of all, 89% of millennials, and again, those are the, those are the young folks, want their workplace uh, to be social and fun, and that's compared to only 60% of boomers. Now, I know I'm going to give you an anecdotal sample. I've got to tell you, it's got to be fun. I'm a boomer. I'm telling you I want it to be fun. I think some of the boomers are so beat down that they think it has to be so serious or they figure they'd be retired by now that it isn't fun anymore, but millennials want it to be fun. So that's one thing, and, and boomers kind of resent that. Well, it can't be fun. We've got to be serious. It's got to be work. Um, 79% of millennials uh, think that they should be allowed to wear jeans at work at least sometimes, compared to only 60% of boomers. Well, fortunately, when I started my own business in 1995, I decided that everybody that worked with me uh, or for me is going to work out of their homes, and therefore we can bring our dogs and, 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 and pets to work, and uh, we wear shorts and T-shirts. So maybe I was ahead of my time uh, 20 years ago when I started this business. But in truth, I think there are a lot of boomers that would like to be more relaxed at work, and we're actually exploring this. But at least that's the data that shows that, pe- that the millennials want it to be more social and fun and want to wear blue jeans. So one more piece of data is that um, uh, 81% of millennials think that they should be allowed to make their own hours at work compared to only 69% of boomers. So these are just some leading indicators of what people perceive the differences to be because the millennials basically challenge the fundamental assumptions of how we, the boomers, do business, have structured business, and then they watch the success and failure rates as we've gone through the dot-com bust, as we've gone through the Enrons and the WorldComs and all of the you know, sort of fraudulent activities that have occurred in business, and they say, maybe these guys and gals don't have it right. Maybe there's a better way to do it. So, you know, as one of these millennials in boomer clothing, I believe that maybe we haven't done it right, and I'm always exploring new ways to do business. So I will always be more aligned with millennial thinking, but fundamentally there's a conflict that exists because millennials think that A, should be done differently, and B, that they, should, that, that they can do it better. So we start with that. We also then overlay that with boomers really coming out of, of family environments that emphasize the old Protestant work ethic. You worked for a company for 30 years, you got a retirement, you worked nine to five, maybe longer. And even though we, the boomers, came out of a generation that challenged things, I mean, we challenged the Vietnam War, we challenged uh, a lot of stuff that went on. Uh, For boomers that are listening in, you know what I mean. Uh, The truth is we didn't hold to those beliefs. This generation, sociologically, is one of the first generations that's actually separated from the value system of their parents so that they're creating a belief system that's dramatically different and not necessarily going to uh, change over time. That is, we, the boomers, tended to fall into line with our parents' generation called seniors, and uh, our value systems are very similar. This generation is challenging and they may not do it the same way that we did it. So boomers are going to resist change. Millennials want change, hence the conflict. Well, um, it's interesting. You made a point earlier in your thing. Um, 
uh, uh, do, you, do you work for your company or uh, and your other people, or do you work with them? Uh, mm-hmm. Our generation, we kind of looked at things and said you work for the company. Right. Uh, this generation seems to be saying, we, uh, I want to work with the company. Yes, and, and, and I think that's a valid point. I think, you know, I've always wanted to work with a company and with colleagues, and I've always used that language. And I have one of my colleagues, um, if she's listening in, she'll know who she is, who always refers to me as her boss, and I always call her my colleague. And so, you know, it's all about the sort of the cultural imperative that a company wants to set up in terms of how it lays itself out there. Are you employed by me or, or am I your colleague and we're working together? So here's what's, what's happening. Uh, we do run into these conflicts where employers regard themselves as an, uh, regard their employees as, an, as employees at will. I can fire you any time. Therefore, the contract is you work for me. In other organizations where there's more of a contingent workforce that are independent contractors, which, by the way, parenthetically, I'll add, is where the world is going, um, and I'll comment on that in just a second, then what it's saying is, hey, I'm my own boss, and you can hire me to work for you for a period of time, and if I'm not liking the way things are going, I'm an independent contractor. So there's a mindset shift that's actually going on in work in general about, who owns who? And that employer-employee contract is quickly going away as we move more to, towards a just-in-time workforce, which is people, just use the metaphor, people working as their own boss, more independent contractors in the mix, less employees in the future. And that's where it's going. So it's an interesting dilemma that people who want to, in effect, own you in the workplace they're not going to have the right to do that. And the data shows that in normal economic times, the millennials in particular are going to move every 18 months. The boomers think about it every 18 months, but they may not execute against it. So the mindsets are similar, but the activity and the actions for millennials will be to move more frequently than boomers ever were able to do. Well, we're clearly seeing that, but uh, uh, don't forget the boomers were the uh – the, the children of the of the parents who went through the depression yes started a great many uh, people yes. uh, uh, you know really focused and you're right about you're absolutely right about the millennials they don't seem to view job security as um, uh, they're not they don't seem to be afraid to lose the job. Here's another piece of data, Don, from that survey done by Nick Shore at uh, MTV. Three-fourths of millennials want to work for themselves one day. There's a real sense of entrepreneurship, and we're not talking about necessarily being in highfalutin technology-based jobs. They may want to be in construction. They may want to be in farming. They may want to be in a variety of different, more um, you know, traditional blue-collar businesses. Uh, but in truth, they want to work for themselves. And that's a testimony to what the work relationship is like with these employers that we also know that, that uh, less than uh, 48% of the workforce regards itself as engaged. You know, they, they are so disengaged in the marketplace today that 48% of the people are saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like enjoying what I'm doing. I'm engaged with the mission and the purpose of my business. Less than half of the people are engaged in what they do, fully engaged. And so we have a major problem in how we set up this employment relationship, and irrespective of the security that was required by boomers' parents because of the Great Depression, this new generation is coming off of a newfound sense of wealth that their parents, the boomers, have been able to create. So it kind of gives them an implicit sense of security. They can boomerang in. Or if you didn't grow up in that environment, there's this sense, this renewed sense of fortitude that says, I can do anything, and I will survive. There are more minimalists that are out there. They don't need what we have. They may not buy the homes that we have. And so there's a whole different sort of dynamic shift as there's been the regentrification of downtowns, as people are moving into smaller spaces, as there's more, not cohabitating in that sense, but there's more communal living that's going on where people are willing to uh, um, uh, be with each other uh, in order to make the economics work. There's a whole different sense of survival and teaming together in survival that I think will cause them 
to not be as dependent upon the work environment as the boomer generation was because of the mindset of their parents. So the oh, different yeah. dynamic. No, no, this is fascinating because uh, uh, the uh, contra- the interesting thing is uh, uh, there's been studies out. There are more family-owned businesses for sale today than at any time since uh, the measurement started. And yes. the main, re- main reason our children don't want to go into their parents' businesses. Uh, that's absolutely correct because they, they don't want to have the experience that they see their parents having. And it's not about they don't want to work that hard. It's that they don't believe that it's necessarily the smart thing to do. Now, I'll give you, by contrast, just a personal anecdote on that. I did not go into my family's business. My father was one of 11 kids. Uh, he and his three brothers had a business that his father started in the men's clothing business, and I decided not to go into that. But I have both of my boys, who are millennials, interestingly enough, working for me. So it can be done. It's all about the environment that you create, the culture that you establish, the reward system that you build, and rewards aren't just about money. It's about things like work-life balance, training opportunities, the ability to serve in our community. Um, so you set up a right, the right kind of reward hierarchy, and then also about development. So it's in the environment, the culture, the rewards, and the development, which is personal development that people feel they have a growth experience working for you. We've worked and we do work at FutureSense with a lot of family businesses, and we've actually worked with them to encourage and have some of the, uh, the children grow up in the business by shifting the culture of the parents to be more reflective of where the world is going. And if we can move the parental units to think about change and transformation in how they run their small businesses or their business, we can move it to the place where it actually becomes palatable for the young people. And we also, at Converse side, have worked with businesses where we've disavowed the young people that you have a entitled right to take over your parents' business and you actually need to know something and kind of build uh, the credentials to be able to do it. And we've held back some people so that they've gained the experience for which they feel much wiser and ready to take over when they're ready to take over. So it seems like sort of a double-edged sword. You've got to work on both sides, uh, but uh, you, your data is correct. Uh, but that can, be, that can be fixed if there's a desire to be in that business, but the environment, culture, development, and rewards are wrong. That's usually the reason they don't go into the business. Well, uh, also, uh, sometimes it's difficult to work with your, your, uh, your father or your mother, uh, particularly if they're, they're self-made. Uh, anyway, that's... Uh, well, that, well that's, I mean, we, we, could spend, we could spend a couple hours on that. It, it can be. It, it all depends on if you convert somebody from being self-made to ultimately being a mentor, and they realize that there's a transformation that goes on, that they, they got to where they got to, but now their job is to infuse, whether it's with their own children or other people's children, uh, the ability to teach and leave their legacy around not the business that they've created, but the people that they leave behind. And, and when you start having those kinds of conversations with folks, they begin to look at it and say, so what you're saying is you need to convert me from being a business owner to being a teacher? And I said, absolutely. And, uh, and, and so when you start thinking through sort of a different framework, you start building across the gaps that do exist, particularly in family-owned businesses, across the gaps that exist between generations, when one realizes from the young person's perspective, they realize that their parents actually are great teachers. And the parents actually realize that their business can transform if they listen to their children as teachers also. And the best and simplest example is around the use of technology and its application where boomers historically have not been as tech savvy as, as uh, the millennials have. But once you begin to rebuild the contract and the relationship and get people out of the conversation about generational differences and look for not only similarities but look for synergies between the generations, then you begin to reframe that entire relationship between parent and child and business. We've done it. We know it can be done. It's not easy. Uh, no change is easy, but uh, that's, it's, it's, it's some work, and it really reframes the conversation. I learn from both my boys every day, 
and uh, one of them actually is uh, only works for us part time. Actually, both of them work for part for for me part time. One of them is found his passion in life, and guess what? It's organic, sustainable farming. Um, and he's shifted my mindset around the, all of the issues of well-being and wellness, which is one of the things that we consult in. I'm learning so much from him. And if you open yourself up to that possibility, even self-made, successful, older people can learn from their children. So what was, what was the song? Teach your children well? I think sometimes it's teach your parents well, and you've got to be open on both sides. Well, you know the old, uh, the old song? At 16, I thought my father was pretty dumb. At 21, I, uh, uh, I really appreciate how much he's learned. Yeah. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, absolutely. But but let, let me turn the question around. Uh, but um, uh, I'm the generation that said, uh, and you put it well, a contract. I work mm-hmm. hard and I get rewarded. Yes. Uh, for, um uh, where in, in in this present millennium do, mm-hmm. does that equation work? Okay, so let me, let me reframe that for you. And it sounds semantics, but it's really the truth. So it used to be I work hard, I put in long hours, and I get rewarded. Now it's about working smart. And those that work smart, it's not necessarily saying that you can um, you don't have to work as hard because sometimes being smart is hard. But in truth, what ends up happening is we judge people put in rather than intelligence that's put in. If somebody can get the job done in two hours well, and it takes another person eight hours, then I think I want to learn from the person that really has done that job incredibly well in two hours. And with the power of technology and with some of the questioning that we've observed about millennials, you can actually condense down this thing of the uh, the, the work ethic, which is an eight-hour day, makes sense, and you can begin to reframe it into working smart. What ends up happening is, is if you're able to work smart, people will work more because they're, doing, they're being more productive, they're gaining more results, they're having more intellectual challenge, and they're able to move forward. So it's really about working smart that I think is the new equation. And uh, I certainly... Uh, have learned a tremendous amount as I have all my various uh, handheld doodahs, um, you know, whether it's iPads, iPhones, uh, MacBook Air, or whatever, if you're on the PC side, all of those, you know, the Android products. Um, uh, and I, they're all singing to me. And I'll tell you, it makes me much, much more productive. And I've learned a tremendous amount by watching even my youngest kid, when he was six years old, uh, be able to make the um, uh, make the computer sing in terms of his ability to play uh, one of the video games out there. He's a soccer fanatic, and he learned how to play soccer so well on the on the computer that it looked like a real game. My guys would be herky-jerky all over the place because I couldn't get the uh, multitasking that's necessary, but I worked at it, and I'm much better at it, and now I'm able to imp- apply my technology to the point that I work smarter. And I think if we think about smart versus hard, uh, we'll get to a better place. Well, uh, before we go on to our next guest, mm-hmm. we want you to stay on because it's it's part of this. Uh, the name of your book again? The name of the book is Fuse, F-U-S-E, Making Sense of the New Co-Generational Workplace. And you can find it anywhere books are sold, uh, both in ebook form as well as in hard copy through the Amazons and Barnes and & Nobles and other sites that are out there. Fuse, F-U-S-E, Making Sense of the New Co-Generational Workplace by Jim Finkelstein and Mary Gavin, G-A-V-I-N. Okay. Uh, I'm not in my studio. I'm, I'm calling in, and I'm, I'm hoping that the, uh, our next guest, which uh, really fits this, uh, we're talking about generational uh, succession, and we have Ray, Ray Jean Wilson with us. And I love the title, her title. She's Vice President uh, of stewardship and and brand alignment, and his daughter of company founders Richard and Pat uh, Taransky, who have uh, some of the best honey I've ever tasted. Gloria B. Honey, Ray Jean, are you with us? I'm with you. I'm with you. Thanks for having me today. Well, thank you for coming on. Well, uh, I've asked Jim Finkelstein to stay on. He was our first guest because he talks about generational uh, uh, differences. And uh, as I understand it, you're working, uh, unlike many uh, 
children of uh, small businesses today, uh, you're, you're working to eventually take uh, take over and lead uh, Gloria B. Honey. Am I right? Yes. Um, this is my 22nd year with the company. I came to work here after I graduated from college, and I've worked in you know sales. I've worked in human resources, and then about a year and a half ago, my brother asked me to be co-VP with him, and he's actually my younger brother, and so um, we're working on the transition with my parents right now. Well, uh, uh, tell us the good things about it, then we'll ask you the bad things about it. Yeah, about working in the family business. Um, and, and, the, and the transition. Yes. Yes. So, well, it's very challenging um, working in a family business. Um, I feel fortunate for the most part because I think one of the things that we've done well is define everyone's role. And so we're not just owners or family members. We actually have specific jobs that we're responsible to do in the company. So that's been helpful over the years. And because we were raised with such a strong work ethic, and because we get to work in such an exciting industry, the natural food and products industry is very exciting. Um, it's never boring, even after 22 years. Well, Jim Finkelstein, go ahead. No, you go. You're the guest. No, I was just going to say the challenges, of course, with the family dynamics are just the lines are blurred in terms of family and work at times, and sometimes you feel like you're working when you're not at work. So, um, you know, that's probably what most people would tell you about working in the family business. Yeah, this, this is Jim. It's funny that you say that because I have my, uh, my son, who's 28, and my other son, who's 23, both working with me in the business right now. And uh, we have to make sure that when we have family time together, sometimes we kind of close off the conversation about business and stay on the family side of the conversation. So there are some interesting challenges, aren't there? Oh, for sure. They're for sure. And I also think um, my, another unique aspect is my husband worked in the family business with us for 16 oh, years. And he decided to actually depart from the family business two years ago, um, I think just partially because of that, and it's been a positive thing. I mean, I think it was difficult at the time, but sometimes people don't give themselves permission to do that, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it, it's extra stress that sometimes not every person is up for that. So could I, can I ask a question? I know I'm not the host, oh, but uh, I'm look. curious about how you all have the relationship in communications with each other. So, you know, whether when your husband was in it, yourself, your parents, your brother, how do you handle the communications around issues in general and then when there is conflict how does that get handled well i will say this those of us that have worked in the business day to day um, we've been able to manage that by just really focusing on it as if it was a business and it wasn't personal and our roles and so even if you feel frustrated it's about the business problem or issue or challenge and I think that you kind of learn that you grow up learning that um, when you've been doing it for a long time and but I think when other family members get involved in some of those decisions that dynamics can change a lot and it can um, it cannot go well (laughs) and so I would you know my biggest Um, advice to anyone in in this situation is to go out and get the help that they suggest that you need. And I think about one of the consultants we used about five years ago, and um, she said it's really difficult to fix the problems you create yourself. And, And it has nothing to do with your capabilities or your intelligence. It's just, it's too inbred at that point. You need someone else to help identify where you could make a change that could solve a problem that you have created. So we've done a little bit of that, and we actually are in the process 
of working with another consultant to help us specifically with the transition of my dad, who's been working in the business for 40 years and still works and doesn't want to completely give up what he does here. But um, we're working with another consultant to help us with that. Well, two two things. One, thank you for using consultants. I'm a consultant. But um, the other thing, too, is it, it is a lot of work, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not for the weak of heart, um, let me just say that. And I do think when you get to work in a business where it's really a values-based company, and even though we are for-profit and we are very fortunate to be in an industry that's growing, um, we have a lot of focus based on our core values. And when you can go back to that and get kind of refreshed as to why you're doing what you're doing, um, it makes it a little easier um, than if you were just strictly working to make money. Well, what do you mean by that value? Uh, uh, well, our, yeah, our company is based on the core values of faith, genuine relationships, healthy living, and stewardship. So when we make decisions as family members and also at this point we've, um, we've let that um, also seep into how we make decisions as managers in the business, it, it um, adds more meaning and depth to what we're doing here. We're not just selling honey or coconut oil or trail mix. Um, we're making decisions that can impact people and um, our world in a more positive way. Mm-hmm. So I think it, um, you know, everybody really wants to make a difference. It's a, it's a universal. I, I noticed you were talking about the generations, and, you know, they, they've surveyed all the different generations, and everybody wants to be part of something, and they want to make a difference. That's correct. And so. Yep. You know, and Ian, especially those millennials, you know, they, they're they very passionate. You can do the, the research even about um, how they buy and how they make choices of what they want to purchase. And so they want to buy from a company that's doing good things in the world and is doing more than just trying to make a lot of money. So, and what you're, well, I think what you're saying also, which we absolutely agree with in our research, is that if you have common purpose and you have a very mm-hmm. strong mission for what you mm-hmm. do, that common purpose will align the generations and you find less differences if people are oriented in the same direction. Um, right. and, and you have done that through your mission, uh, through your emphasis on a healthy future, and how you've set up the business. And in those kinds of situations, Don, I think what you'll see is you see more alignment and you become totally age agnostic. It doesn't matter how old you are or what generation you're part of. People will align around common purpose. And that it sounds like uh, what you've done at, uh, at Glory Bee has been, been exactly that, and consciously too. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. And I think we've, we are really just working. I mean, I appreciate that. We're still really in the process of working on how to pull that out so it's meaningful across all the generations. And so that's been a project that I've been part of for the last two years. And we're making some progress. And I think people are, you know, more passionate about it and getting it, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, it's been there since the beginning. Those are the founding principles that my parents really started this business on. But how do you pull that out in a relevant way to this, you know, landscape of of, uh, employment that's changing rapidly right before our eyes? And uh, so we're working on that all the time. That's been a huge focus over the last two years. You said said that uh, you brought it into – how you hire and how you um, uh, uh, bring on managers. What did you mean by that? Well, we um, we actually ask um, in the application, we ask people what their core values are. Um, it's something that we also talk about during our interview process. It's part of our onboarding. Um, I actually meet with every new hire after they've been with us um, within the month and share with them about the core values of the company and find out which one of those resonate with them the most and what is their number one personal core value. 
and um, it's also been something that we focused on at our all company meeting, um, sharing with employees, you know, what is an example of genuine relationships you experienced? You know, how have you seen your coworkers use faith? Um, what is an, where has stewardship came out in the work that you're doing? And, um, you know, when we talk about healthy living, it's mind, body, and spirit. It's not just, you know, looking like a movie star. So that's a little bit of how we're attempting to do that. And you're called the vice president of stewardship. What, what yes. is that? What, is, well, what do you mean by that? So a little fancy name for social responsibility. So part of my job, which is the fun part, um, our company, um, you know, I guess it's it's been kind of fun for us because we have a social responsibility um, program or cause we call Save the Bee, which makes a lot of sense. It's the heart of the company. We've been actually, even though the majority of our sales come from um, selling ingredients to people who buy organic and natural products and put them in their products, we've been selling bees and bee supplies for 40 years. And so um, a percent of our sales goes to save um, the honeybee. And um, so that is part of what I'm responsible for. And then we also have another brand here at Glory Bee called Aunt Patty's. And um, we have another program called Food for Health where a percent of the sales goes towards helping kids learn about healthy food and healthy eating. And so I'm responsible for the community partnerships and the promotion of those programs. And I'm also responsible for um, the oversight of the volunteer, the volunteerism and giving our employees that experience. So we do have paid volunteer hours here. And so me and my assistant help kind of organize that. Well, uh, for uh, some in our audience who don't know, Correct me if I'm wrong, Ray Jean, but for the last couple of years, there's been serious decline in bee stocks, and people don't really understand why. Am I right on that point? Right, absolutely. And I would say at this point, my brother is the resident expert, um, Alan Taransky, and he was even asked to speak at the state capitol here in Oregon on behalf of the issues with the pesticides and the neonicotides with the bees. And um, our city is actually one of the first cities to ban the use of those um, because there's definitely research that connects um, the fact that the bees aren't surviving um, because of the pesticides, but what they call it is colony collapse, and there's quite a bit on our website if you go to that, and we're really hooked up with Oregon State um, University's honeybee lab, believe it or not, they actually have a honeybee lab where they are doing more of a farm to table research where they're going and meeting with the beekeepers and they're meeting with the farmers and they're working with them to convince them to try different things besides pesticides, help them to understand more about what it is that's really affecting the bees. Um, my brother would cite that 40% of our food supply um, requires some part of bee pollination. So when you think about the healthy foods like the fruits and the vegetables and the nuts, um, even everybody that loves coffee, um, it requires bee pollination. And um, it's been stated that without the bees, we, would, we wouldn't last more than four years because of all the things they do that is required for our food supply. Oh, and, and your website? is uh, glorybee.com, and there's a little link on there called um, Save the Bee or Stewardship. There's actually a little link on there for Stewardship that shares quite a bit more information. Upper right-hand corner of the website, and, it, and quite frankly, it's a, it's a brilliant website because if you look at it, again, from a co-generational workplace perspective, this appeals to a lot of people of all generations. You've been around since 1975. That's fantastic. You're appealing just in terms of the words that you use in, in, in the, your stewardship towards the things that resonate with folks. I mean, I would imagine that you would be very appealing to all generations 
uh, who, um, who who cross your path because you've you've built a uh, a company that's focused in on mission and people are mission driven in this world they really are and they're just trying to find a way to make a living at the same time that they can be oriented with companies that are doing the kind of great work that you're doing. So I, I you know, personally, I'm, I'm glad to have discovered you at Glory B. I have a son who's an organic, sustainable farmer in the uh, San Luis Obispo area, San Luis Obispo County in California, and oh. he, is, he, he very much understands all of this. He's been talking to us about bees for years. And anyway, we could go offline at some point and talk about it, but you're absolutely, you know, I mean, you're spot on with what you do and how you do it. So I really, I really commend oh. you. And I'm not ordinarily impressed by companies and how they operate. So uh, oh, very, gosh. very well done. Well, you are. I'm going to hire you. You're my new marketing guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. And in fact, just as a moment of humor, Don, and then you can shut, you know, you can shut but, me off. Oh, no, 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 no. This is the. This across, is I was across the street about. of the neighbors this morning. She said, "I'm getting." This crazy buzzy sound, buzzy sound, and she looks out her window, and there's a whole bunch of bees. And I said, whatever you do, because she's going to have the gardener come over to check it out, I said, don't get rid of the bees. We need bees. So we were talking about bees this morning. Isn't this funny? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I'll add, um, we were fortunate uh, at the Fancy Food Show uh, to get some samples of, of their honey. Uh, I'm a diabetic, so I can't have too much of it, but... Uh, uh, it was it was outstanding, truly outstanding. Oh. Well, thank you very much. Um, I mean, we feel honored, and um, I think the the good thing is that um, we really believe that we can't do what is necessary to save the bee without a lot of people behind the cause. And so, it's really not about glory bee. It's about everybody working together and learning and getting educated. So, I really appreciate it. Yeah, we were um, really kind of ironic that I get to talk to you today because we actually got reviewed on the Supermarket Guru today, and we were the hit of the week. So oh, our excellent. honey, um, our honey got a big plug today. So that humbly, that was a kind of exciting day. For it's been an exciting day, and then to get to talk to you guys has been exciting as well. Well, we love, uh, that's what this program's about. But let me ask you one question, Ray Jean. Uh, yeah. What's the makeup of your uh, workforce? I mean, do you have a lot of young people, middle-aged people, or older people, or how are you mixed? Well, you know, it's interesting. I realized that there was a huge value to the older generation, and I'm going to say like 55 and above, about five years ago. And sometimes, I mean, they've told me, people that have left our employment in that age range, how difficult it is to get hired out there. And what I've found is just the wisdom that they can add to our workforce is just such a huge value. So, um, you know, we actually have a fair amount of managers that might fall into that category. Um, because we have a lot of warehouse and production, we have a lot of the millennials and that younger generation. And I think a lot of the worker bees um, ah. are probably closer to my age range, somewhere in the 40s, you know, and, uh, you know, early to mid-40s. And so I think we have a pretty good diversity here um, in terms of, you know, um, genders and age range, um, but with our warehouse and production, you're going to definitely have a younger generation. And I would also say customer service because we have a, a pretty big um, department that takes calls from customers, and you definitely are going to get some millennials in that group. Well, um, do they work well together? Uh, they do. You know, one of the things that we've identified is that sometimes they'll get um, a little too internally focused. And so I really believe um, having the core values as something they can really um, use to kind of leverage their talent and their teams. So anything you can do to... Um, kind of, I would say, deflect them from becoming just a little bit focused on themselves and like the cause, like Save the Bee and Food for Health. I think that's helpful because they, they get um, – 
pretty self-focused without um, that structure and direction about, you know, I guess, and I, I'm struggling on how to say that, but and that's probably really what we've attempted to do more of over the last couple years. Yeah, the, da- the data clearly shows that engaged workforces, okay, and we'll just use mm-hmm. that as a, as a descriptor, engaged workforces will have less divisiveness that's based on ethnicity, age, however you're going to demographically try to scale them, there'll be less divisiveness in a more engaged workforce. And we were talking earlier about the fact that most of the workforces out there are not engaged. What you've done in terms of having common cause and purpose is you have brought together the sort of the equalizing force, which is, wait a minute, folks, doesn't matter whether it's generationally based or other reasons that people might have conflict. Let's take a step back from that and look at why we exist, what our purpose is, really the why of the business, and, uh, and you're able to use that as a grounding force to get people to kind of work together more effectively. It's powerful. And I would imagine that, you know, if, and you probably do engagement surveys, you have a highly engaged workforce because not only do you have a powerful and compelling mission, but you also hire in that image. You hire people that are motivated by that particular image. And culture of what you've created in your organization, if you remember, Don, I talked about culture, environment, development, and rewards as really sort of being the four main things that you have to look at. Uh, your culture is strong, and, and we've seen examples of this. Tony Say at Zappos has an unbelievably strong culture. It's a little crazy in my book, but uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't work for them. I probably would flunk out of their culture. But in truth, he's made a very important point, as have other strong leaders, that the culture of what we stand for, what we believe in, our value systems, are critically important to the, the uh, success of our brand, and we will never – sacrifice that culture values what we stand for um, and they will fire people who are culturally incompatible however they try to have a very high success rate on hiring people culturally attuned with where the organization's going and at glory be at least having been to your website and looking at the description of who you are and what you stand for it's compelling and people are either going to get it or they're not and it will get rid of any of those generational biases that exist when you remind people about why they're there. So I imagine that that's been a very, you know, it's still work, but it's uh, it's a very powerful and compelling magnet to bring people together. Yeah, well, you're yeah, you're doing a very eloquent job describing, you know, what we're continuing to work on. the The word that we've been using that I think is also helping is shared leadership. Mm -hmm. And so we're really using that word to inspire everyone to work together. So regardless of what your role is at Glory B, your opinion is important, you're valued, we want to know what you think. Um, And so that doesn't always mean that we're going to do exactly what you suggest, but we care about what you want to give and input. And I think that actually has been a little bit of a challenge for some of the older generation. You know, how does that look? What does that feel like when you ask for your employees' feedback, but you don't necessarily aren't going to go that direction? So we've been working on that as well. Um, and so um, once a quarter, we provide updates of what that really means, which part of the shared leadership is getting the employee feedback, the employee satisfaction, the employee engagement. So we also are working on more transparency because the millennials um, want that. And Glory B is a privately held company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of what the company's made over the years, we've just reinvested into the company, um, mm-hmm. you know, out of necessity, you know, needing better facilities or, you know, needing new equipment, but trying to share with our employees how their work affects the outcome of, you know, our success. And so we also implemented a KPI. Um, the key performance indicators um, incentive, which it's it's not a lot of money, and employees can get anywhere from a few hundred dollars to you know four hundred dollars a quarter if everybody achieves certain things. And so, um, one of those is retention, you know, retention of your team. Um, one of those is sales, of course, and um, 
gross profit, you know, where do, where do we need to hit to be the team that we need to be? And one of them is, you know, is how well do we do filling customers' orders, you know, out of, you know, what they order, how often do they get 100% of what they order from Glory B? And um, so, you know, we're, I think that that's helping that younger generation because they, you know, they want information. They want to know what's really going on, and we're trying to structure it so that we can provide adequate information, but we're not, like, opening the company's, you know, internal books and showing them everything, but we're trying to share what we're doing and showing them how they contribute. Well, and, and the message that you have through that type of shared leadership and that strategy around shared leadership has a very important end result. That says, I trust you. And uh, what you, you, you haven't gone as far as Jack Stack in the book The Great Game of Business did in his business. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with that book, but it's, it's a fabulous book. And he talks yeah. about you know, open books and the use yeah. of open books in businesses. But it, the concept of... I trust you to share information and share our direction. Um, it's a very powerful, motivating force. And you also address something, I think, Regine, that's, that's, that's important. And it's not the amount of money. It's the purpose of the money that aligns people together with what you're trying to get done. So in your KPIs and your compensation programs, you've aligned it. Um, and what you also have created is a sustainable business because you've reinvested in the business. I mean, these are fundamental sort of business 101 mm-hmm. principles that people use. And, again, it engages people different ways uh, depending mm-hmm. upon what their reference points are. But I just got to tell you, well done. I got to meet you someday. <laughs> it's a oh, yeah. story. Well, I, I have to give my dad a little credit because he's definitely, you know, taught um, – me and my brother about these principles and um he's definitely the entrepreneur's spirit where i like to say he needs a lot of people around him to get his ideas implemented right right <laughs> obviously he's sweetening us up with a lot of honey because we're still here after 22 years but but don did yeah, you hear I, the key don did you hear the key word because we were talking about this earlier and we talked about family-owned businesses and how difficult it is to transcend between the uh the parents and the child and what you said was my dad taught us okay and that's the key transformational point that has to occur in order for these businesses to transition. And obviously, even with the hard work that you're going through, and I know there's always issues in succession and transition for family-owned businesses, but turning the parent, owner, founder, success you know, person into a teacher is ultimately what has to happen to transfer successfully over time. Yeah, so that, that was the operative word. You, could, you couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, I have to tell you, uh, I, I've been covering small business for 20 years, and I've seldom come across a, com- a co- company that so perfectly illustrated the points of a, a book than uh, Glory B. Um, uh, this has been a fascinating hour for me. The best part is I don't have to say anything. Um, <laughs> well, um, you know, that's the best. That's a good MC when he doesn't have to say too much. Uh, we're coming to close to the close of the hour, so uh, we'll start with you, uh, Jim. Any closing thoughts? Yeah, I I, I just want to thank you for introducing me to Glory B and Regine, and I may be pronouncing your name incorrectly, but I've, I've asked Don to send me your contact information if that's okay, because you're a fascinating person. You're it sounds like you're a Gen Xer who's um, we we haven't defined that generation yet because uh, candidly we we in our book fuse. Uh, took a look at the bookends, you know, the bigger generations. But you're you're an example of leadership that's coming in uh, that will be transforming organizations, and you're doing it very successfully in in your business. So I guess my final comment is that irrespective of what people say or think is the norm and the stereotype, much like you were saying, Don, the data shows that that uh, family-owned businesses don't transition well down to the next generation, uh, and certainly not to the generation after that. That's, that's even the tougher point. Here's an example of where stereotypes and pre-thinking about what can't be really, you, it, you blew it away. And so we have an example of something that's actually worked. And I will tell you that if we get rid of the divisive stereotypes 
about generations and how they intersect in the marketplace and how different they are, and we start looking across these generations for similarities, we will find out that they're more similar than they are different because the workforce is going to be from 18 to 80. We are dealing with this for the first time in a very, very long time, and it's here to stay for a very long time because, candidly, people can't retire. And that's a whole separate conversation around where we are as, an, as a nation financially. But this is a big crisis that people cannot move on. And so just to kind of synthesize this down, we all have to get along across these generations. And that's why we call it a co-generational workplace. And we want to spend our energy in that co-generational workplace having people find out what their best attributes are, the wisdom of the, of the boomers combined with the techno-savvy of the millennials, uh, and you may get some interesting magic rather than spending our energy figuring out why we can't get along. So uh, Glory B sounds like a great example of a co-generational workplace that's been successful, of a business that's in transition that's going to be successful, and I personally look forward to learning more about, about Glory B. And, uh, you know, Future Sense, uh, we're very excited. We are a co-generational workplace as well, and uh, it's been exciting to have my sons in the business along with all of our other colleagues, and uh, uh, it's a great world out there in which to, uh, to influence change and move people forward. So thank you for the opportunity, Don. Uh, uh, Racine, before you uh, close, uh, do you do you have children, and do your brother have children, or not? do you hope they come into the business? You know, that's a good question, and I appreciate you know definitely all the compliments. Um, yeah, my son is um, 17, and he works here a couple days a week during the summer, and we have 10-hour shifts in the production department, so about 20 hours a week. And so he's learning about work at this point, and I'd really have to cite my mom, who's um, actually Pat Taransky, but her brand is Aunt Patty's, on really just educating. So she's really taken it upon herself as kind of the family matriarch for grooming all these children. She starts them off working in the garden. Um, she pays them to do chores at her house. Um, and then, obviously, we have opportunities for these kids when they become old enough to actually work here at Glory Bee at the annual um, Bee Day or Bee Weekend um, that we have every year in April. My brother has two boys. Um, one of them worked nine hours on the Saturday right um, on. helping <laughs> our safety supervisor, helping unload bees, helping give out honey sticks. And so they're being groomed um, you know, really, I think we want to teach them about the value of um, helping people and kind of serving in a humble way. And um, when they're here, they just love it. Um, they really do love it. And so, of course, kids aren't always excited about work. But um, I think, you know, teaching them that work ethic. But this year, which was really fun, I got to give each of my nephews uh, their first little paycheck. My um, seven-year-old nephew, I gave him a paycheck for $5, and the yeah. other one got one for $20. And um, so, you know, the value of money and, and earning it, they seemed to think that was pretty exciting. Cool. <laughs> yeah, but in closing, I'd just like to say thank you also, Don, for having me on here and for, you know, just reaching out to a family business because it is a challenge. I really loved what you shared about the co-generational workplace, um, and I really think that that is really important for anyone in business to be thinking about because really for us to be successful in the future, we're going to have to learn to work together and I personally know that sometimes you don't have all the skills that are necessary to get it done. So you need to have other people with other experiences and knowledge and talents um, in order to be successful. So, you know, that is something that Glory B is going to need to continue to work on because, honestly, um, that's probably the biggest challenge is people not getting along or not seeing the value in someone that doesn't do things the same way they do or think the same way or act the same way. And that's kind of our world. I mean, that's what the landscape is looking like, um, regardless of what industry you're in. Well, uh, uh, it's up to me to thank both of you for a really great and, I think, informative program. And I hope you'll both come back sometime in the future. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much, and I'm going to buy your book. I'm buying the book, Fuse. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm going to buy Glory B products. (laughs) Okay, good. Well, thanks again. All right. And now, well, folks, that's the end of the hour, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience and profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.